It's May 25th, 2020. This is Rook. Well, there are those that leave or are exiled that make their opinions known when they are no longer inside Iran. Then there are those that stay and remain silent to avoid strict penalties on speech and dissent. And then there are those brave souls who opt to return to Iran and undaunted let their voices of opposition be heard. Bahman Farmanara is an iconic Iranian filmmaker who has never shied away from being outspoken before or certainly after the revolution. After years in the diaspora, he returned to Iran, and he joins me today from Tehran to discuss censorship, mortality, and an inability to stay silent. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. to episode number 12 of Rook. Omidvar hastam ke khub bashin. Khubi shaya. Hello. Yes. Thank you. How are you? You're good. Okay. We have uh, some special shows coming up in the coming days. I wanted to let you know that this Thursday, a well-known band from the Iranian diaspora whose main members live on different continents now like many time zones away from each other. We're going to get them on the line from different places in the world this Thursday. Stay tuned for that. Um, also, at the end of today's episode, I'm going to play some music that is uh, it's a it's a world exclusive, right? Yes. The first time it's being heard here, yes. featuring uh, a couple of very well-known Iranian actors and uh, some friends you may recognize playing the music. We will get to that, but first... It's no secret that Iranian cinema has a dynamic tradition that has been lauded all over the world for its poetry, its poignance, and allegorical storytelling. Well, there are a few names over the last half century that have had a bigger contribution to Iranian filmmaking than my guest today. Bahman Farmin Ara is a globally acclaimed film director, screenwriter, and producer born in Tehran. His first role as a director came with the House of Qamar Khanum in 1972, before writing, directing, and producing Prince Ehtijab in 1974, a film which won the Grand Prix at the International Tehran Film Festival. He then produced some major films, including Abbas Kiarostami's first feature, Bahram Beyzai's The Crow in 1977, and Khosro Haritash's Divine One. Bahman Farminara moved to France and then to Canada in 1980, when his film The Tall Shadows of the Wind was banned in Iran, and he established a distribution company and film festival for children and young adults in Vancouver. His prolific career then focused in North America, where he helped films such as Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ and Stephen Freer's The Grifters make it to the big screen. He then returned to Iran and from 1991 endured a 10-year ban from filmmaking in Iran. 
Bahman Farminara's break into a global audience, you might say, was with his movie The Smell of Camphor, Fragrance of Jasmine in the year 2000, which won eight awards at the International Fadged Film Festival, including Best Film and Best Director. It also won the Special Jury Prize at the Montreal Film Festival. He's since made five more compelling films that have been internationally recognized, including the latest, Tale of the Sea. He is undoubtedly one of the foremost figures of Iranian cinema. And right now, Bahman Farmin joins me from Tehran today. Hello, sir. Hi. Good to hear from you. It's, it's so nice to talk to you again. And I, I, I want to be clear on what I should call you. I'm tempted to call you Aghay Farmin but uh, how, how do you feel? What should I call you? No, my first name is better because uh, when they call me Arif Harmonara, I sound too old. <laughs> okay, well, you're definitely not too old, so I'll do that. Let, let me ask you this uh, first, Batman. How, how are you uh, doing in Tehran right now? How would you characterize the mood in Iran and your, your days there currently? Well, the mood, uh, the general mood, uh, it's uh, uh, very... Uh, what can I say, um, very dark because uh, we didn't have a New Year celebration. People have been in quarantine for about almost two and a half months. We don't get any inf- uh, proper information that you can trust from the cases from different cities and so on. So we all uh, have uh, to do what we can as a person. So I uh, I follow all the rules, my brothers and other people that I'm in touch with, we all uh, you know, follow all the rules, but um, economy uh, was in a bad shape before coronavirus, so now it's even worse. Um, but uh, the government says we are okay, go back to work, and people are going back to work. When I go in the, to work in the morning, um, I see that almost about 60% of the people not wearing masks or gloves or anything uh, like that, as if their coronavirus did not exist. Wow. Um, but we are trying to follow through, and we take it day by day. When you say you, in the morning you go to work, so you go to an office? Yes, I have an office inside the uh, city because I, I live about 25 minutes outside of the Tehran area. Uh, and um, I, I do uh, my work. You know, I, I have some contacts. I'm writing things. I'm following a possible uh, production that uh, may happen in the next uh, month or two. So, as I said, we take it one day at a time and... Uh, it's it's okay so far. You know, it seems it may seem curious to an outsider who doesn't know you well that you have chosen to stay in Tehran, in Iran for that matter. You're not unfamiliar with the West. You studied in California. You lived in Vancouver. You ran major film companies in North America. Much of your family is in Canada and the U.S. On this show, we've talked to a few different um, well-known artists who are in the diaspora, Iranian artists, who love their Iranian heritage, but do not feel like they could do the kind of work that they want to do in Iran. But you have chosen to go back there and stay. Can you tell us why? Well, the reality of it is uh, that um, I want to be in Iran. 
I'm making films for the Iranian audience. I don't say that if, for example, a French critic likes my movie, I'll be unhappy. No, but that's like uh, uh, cream on the cake. My cake is Iranian uh, people, and I like to communicate with them. And especially when there are some upheavals, as it was in the last year, um, and people got killed and so on. I really want to be in this country when it's uh, in turmoil because I, I feel very guilty to be outside of Iran, uh, enjoying myself, and uh, and uh, you know other things are happening here. So that's why I've come back, and I like to stay in Iran. And uh, really, unless there is a major purpose for it, I don't want to leave Iran at this time. I want to get, I'm going to come back to your response to upheaval and turmoil in Iran. But just sticking with the, the notion of staying there, uh, which is uh, in contrast to most of your family that I understand live outside of Iran. Do they, do family members or even colleagues ever implore you to return to the West, say, come, come live in um, L.A. or Toronto or something? Well, uh, that's definitely what my wife says every day. I have one uh, younger son that lives in L.A. and works in L.A. and is married there. So uh, he's got his job to do, and, uh, but the rest of the family will be coming back to Tehran uh, shortly after the flights resume, except my uh, oldest grandchild, who's 18, and if he comes back to Iran, he has to go to military service, and I don't want him to go to military service at the present time. Let me get into your storied career. When, you know, when people talk about you, historians, critics, fans, they talk about your career being split into two. The films you made or were involved in pre-revolution, and then the films you've done and the outspoken stands you've taken after the revolution. Do you see your own life that way? I've never been a filmmaker um, just for the fun of it or try to make a um, major film that sells a lot and all that. I have uh, a mission as far as I'm concerned. Um, before the revolution, Prince Ehtijab uh, that I made is a film that is clearly um, opposite to a monarchy uh, way and ruling uh, in Iran. But um, they're not all political, but I, um, I see and I criticize the government in charge. And uh, since the Islamic Revolution, uh, nothing is to my satisfaction uh, as far as the freedom of us, the artists. Um, we are heavily censored uh, in every aspect of the work. I'm not talking about only movies. I'm talking about the... Uh, writers, poets, uh, painters, uh, everybody that is in, in art. And uh, gradually in the last 42 years uh, that has passed from the revolution, major artists have died. And in these 42 years, Islamic Republic has totally failed to replace at least one of these people, important people that we've lost and say, okay, that, uh, okay, that is the future, and he's going to replace so-and-so. 
Um, so as a person that lives here and works here, and uh, uh, I belong to here. Um, so I personally, um, if I'm, I live here, it's just because um, it's my country. I don't have to show my passport to anybody. Uh, and uh, also, I have a lot of fans. I have a lot of people that like my movies and follow. Uh, and uh, that's the life I've chosen. And my wife has accepted it. Uh, my kids have accepted it. And uh, so I go on as I've done for a long time. You talk about you and other artists being heavily censored. And, and one of the through lines of your prolific career on all sides of film, as a writer, director, producer, actor, has been dealing with censorship, both before the revolution and definitely after. And, and I want to ask you about this for people to get some sense of what you've had to deal with over the years. In, in 1979, your film, Tall Shadows of the Wind, from what I understand, authorities viewed this film's dream sequence carefully several times, even frame by frame, to count the number of scarecrows to ensure that there were not 12 of them because it would have translated to sacrilege by making reference to the 12 imams. The film was banned by the Forbidden Acts Bureau in Iran. You were accused of making anti-Islamic films. You were banned from exiting Iran for a period of time. What what were the mechanics of this? In other words, were the members of the review committee known to the filmmakers? Were they themselves engaged in the filmmaking profession? Were they film critics? Who, who gets to decide? Well, <laughs> that's a $60,000 question because uh, we almost uh, anybody can decide uh, regardless of their position. And um, there is not a... Uh, yes, we have a Ministry of uh, uh, Culture and Islamic uh, Guidance, but uh, so many times they are influenced by the pressure groups from all, uh, you know, all around the Iran. Um, so we never know uh, who has decided this. When I did uh, Tall Shadows of the Wind, uh, after three days, uh, they took the film off. And they asked me to go to an institution which um, it is called Prevention of Sin uh, Institution. Uh, and um, I went there at 9 a.m. And I was there till 9 p.m. Uh, there was a young uh, uh, mullah that was questioning me. And, and uh, he said that uh, we have 14 innocents. Uh, which is uh, the 12 imams and uh, uh, Muhammad and also the daughter of Muhammad. So he tells me that you burned 14 scarecrows, and by that you mean that you're burning the 14 uh, uh, innocents in Islamic uh, religion. Well, I remember that I, I had made 30 uh, scarecrows because it was a very, very uh, long passage that we had to follow. But I, um, but I figured that maybe, you know, in that shot that, that we used, because we never thought about that, uh, maybe there are 14. So I said, no, there were 30, and we looked at that shot, uh, set it up, and the mullah came in and looked at it, and we counted the scarecrows from the beginning of the shot 
And uh, luckily, there were 16. And his response to me was that, uh, I think you added two scarecrows before I arrived. Wow. Which uh, showed that he didn't know anything about the movies. I don't have two scarecrows in my pocket. <laughs> and uh, But then he did, uh, started saying that uh, uh, all your films have been against uh, religion, which I challenged him. I mean, oh, why are you saying this? Uh, uh, that is not true. And he referred to a sequence in uh, Prince Job, And the... Uh, expression that he used was that you have uh, cut, parallel cut, uh, two scenes together, a morning sequence and a uh, masturbation sequence together. Well, parallel cut for the guy that thought I had two scarecrows in my pocket, um, it was not his expression because he didn't know anything about movies. So I, um, I felt threatened because I realized one of our uh, esteemed colleagues who was uh, working with them. And um, I argued, and eventually it took 12 hours uh, till they let me go home. Luckily, I had um, a visa to go to uh, France because of, uh, it was close to Cannes Film Festival. And two days later, I left. And uh, my wife and three kids came a week later. You never know in Iran. Even when I came back and for 10 years they didn't let me make a film. And then I met uh, A Smell of Camphor and Fragrance of Jasmine. Yes. Uh, and uh, then the following film was the, A House Built on Water. So everybody, I, I'm, they banded. I went to the court and I said, um, sir, have you seen the film? He said, no. I said, why do you ban a film that you haven't seen? He said, there is a, a complaint about your film. And I said, can I see the complaint? He said, no. And it took two and a half years for the film to be eventually uh, shown, and I never knew who uh, complained, why they were banning it, uh, and um, so this is not a problem that only I have, other young directors have it, older directors have it, and uh, you know they give us a, a license to shoot a film, uh, that means that they've approved your script, but not they but don't. They don't always give you that right away. By the way, I mean, even when you made the the smell of camphor in two thousand, after you'd returned to Iran, as you said, that was your eleventh script submitted for approval over that decade, and and they they finally said okay to that one. Um, uh, I, I don't know why, because maybe uh, they thought you were it was you were going to die in it or something, because <laughs> uh, you were <laughs> acting in it yourself, right? Um, so uh, one of one of the things I'm curious about is whether you think this censorship mechanism. I mean, the the, the conventional wisdom is to, is to say, okay, that was 1979 with uh, with Tall Shadows of the Wind, and and even the Smell of Camphor, Fragrance of Jasmine was 2000. Things have changed now. How much have things changed now? Um, unfortunately, the things haven't changed. Uh, the things haven't changed. Only the people that are in charge, uh, they get changed every now and then. Uh, 
Uh, and, um, uh, you know, when I came back to Iran, um, num number one thing against me was that I had left Iran after the revolution, two years after the revolution, so they considered me anti-revolution. Um, but it took 10 years, one script each year, for eight or nine months for them to tell me no. And eventually, at the beginning of Khatami's uh, regime, um, they approved uh, the 11th script for me to make. Um, so it's, uh, you never know. You never know. I, I just, uh, last year, I had a script that they have given me, uh, the, um, a certificate to shoot the film. But normally, once they give you the certificate, they announce it in the newspapers. So uh, they didn't announce mine. I waited a couple of days. Then I asked them, and they said, no, we're not going to announce it. So I said, this is a strike against the film before even the film is made. Uh, they said, yes, uh, but uh, uh, we are doing it uh, because people will attack you uh, because of this script is very, very critical of the Islamic Republic. And I said, but you gave me permission to shoot the film. And uh, they really don't have any answer for it because... Uh, I'm not going to shoot the film. I'm not going to use somebody's money uh, just to satisfy myself and be sure that the film is not going to be shown. And uh, that is that is the dilemma uh, for filmmakers because we have to spend a lot of money to make a film and then they come and say, no, we gave you permission to shoot it, but we're not going to give you release permit there's such conflicting feelings listening to stories like this you know it's a, it's a, it's this ongoing paradox where i'm listening to your story about the guy with the saying no there was 16 scarecrows and this is what they mean and it's comical you know it's almost like you've written a satire about this story but it's real and it's devastating at the same time and I wonder what the impact of all this censorship is on the creators. Like when you have to be that aware of state censorship and when people are li literally born into it at this point, it has to become part of the way in which you create. In other words, while Iranians and, and certainly you um, are people with a lot to say, how prevalent does self-censorship become? How much do you censor yourself in the moment of creation or development of a film because you're always thinking, is this going to get accepted or not? Well, <laughs> most of our stories are allegorical uh, simply because you can't directly criticize anybody. Uh, but one thing that uh, we have figured out is that I write some really provocative scenes uh, in the script uh, for them to be deleted so they let the rest of the script, uh, you know, to be shot. And that may sound funny, uh, but it becomes funny when very obvious uh, uh, shot uh, does not get censored. Uh, although I have put it there to be censored so they, would, they wouldn't they would touch the rest of the script. Can you give an example uh, of that? 
Yeah, I um, um, in the film uh, A Little Kiss, uh, we go in front of the uh, Cyrus's tomb. There is a sequence there, and uh, one one of the main characters says, "Are uh, young people? They don't know anything about uh, Cyrus." And the other character says, "Well." Uh, it's better because they say that he was an American spy. And uh, he says, no, 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 um, uh, you're wrong. Uh, the latest thing that he was a Freemason. Hmm. Well, the fact that we are saying that uh, at the time of uh, Cyrus, Cyrus was uh, American spy and America didn't even exist right, at the time. Right, right. I thought they would definitely would cut it out. But they didn't, and it still is in the film. <laughs> uh, uh, so <laughs> sometimes these things happen. And uh, I uh, one, one thing which I have always mentioned, the people that sit on the censorship board anywhere in the world, I think they are not very bright people. Otherwise, they wouldn't accept this job. Mm. Uh, because it's a demeaning job that you think that you're smarter than the uh, rest of the 80 million Iranians, you are smarter. Uh, so I'm not surprised sometimes when they miss it, uh, but uh, but sometimes they also come to uh, things that you never ever thought that they would say this is uh, what is wrong and you have to take out uh, because I don't think like them. Sometimes I think I'm more clever than they are, but no, I mean it's it's a battle. But you're you're also undaunted. I mean, you you keep going. Your your films are incredibly compelling, but you know, they're also quite bleak and full of despair. But I don't think you can be because despite all we've discussed in terms of censorship, you still search for ways to make films and and you succeed at at it. So so you have some kind of hope and inspiration to keep making films. What is that in the face of the struggle that you that you seem to the, the, the brick wall you keep hitting up against? Well, number one is this is the uh, this is my job. It's true I can do other work, but I only enjoy filmmaking, and I try to make uh, uh, films to have a conversation with the nation that I live with. But Yes, of course, uh, I tell the young people when they get upset, I said the best gift you can give to the government if you get so depressed that you go and sit in your home and they say, good, we got rid of this guy. So I refuse uh, to be so depressed that I give up my uh, work and I go and fight every day uh, with another uh, uh, script and try to talk and make another film. Because uh, giving up is not my job. Uh, I have to work and they have, uh, they have to be uh, doing their censorship if they think it's necessary. Uh, but um, I'm not a person for giving up. You know, there's so much to talk about with someone who's had as prolific a career as you have. But I, I thought for the purposes of our conversation today, I would also focus a little on mortality. 
if you'll excuse the somewhat macabre direction of doing so, because it, it seems like we're surrounded by reminders of our mortality these days, or as uh, Ramin Jahanbeglu said here a few weeks ago, coming to terms with our own fragility. And, and it's no secret that you've been returning to themes of death and mortality in your work over the decades. Do you see this time, a, a global pandemic, as a moment when we're all coming to terms with our own death in a in somehow a, a more profound way, like a, a global teachable moment? Well, I think one of uh, the three of my films, uh, the critics have put it a trilogy of death. But my comment to them or anybody that has seen the films, I said, you have to be aware that this is a one-way ticket. Our lives end sooner or later. But when you're aware that the death is coming, I think you, uh, you live better. You, the moments are precious. If I uh, can get hold of my granddaughter who's three years old, and I can play with them. I really enjoy it, but this doesn't mean that I forget that, okay, I'm also 80 years old. Uh, And uh, I try to use the mortality, uh, which almost everybody, uh, thinking person, knows that this is going to come and end, uh, just because tell them that live, fight, make something that you like, Enjoy what you have. The pandemic that has come, uh, the only advantage or the only thing that is interesting about it for me, for the first time, Iran is like all other countries Mm. in facing this pandemic and fighting this virus. And uh, we see that a country like uh, U.S. with all the best things in the world that are there, but they have a leader that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, sitting in Iran, he's an idiot. So uh, what he does, uh, they, they now have a lot of people that are dying and all that. Uh, while he had uh, all the elements mm-hmm. uh, to stop it or to go to it. But as far as a filmmaker is concerned, um, I'm not morbid. I'm not thinking about death all the time. But in the stories that I tell, I always say, okay, this is going to happen whether you like it or not, but enjoy your life. Have you ever been afraid of death? It hasn't come to me <laughs> yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, why? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not that I'm going to volunteer for it. No, but I also I know the fragility of of our lives, what can happen, and so on. No, I I I'm not afraid of it, and all I want to as far. As my, I'm concerned that my kids are okay, my grandchildren are okay, and uh, there's always a time to say goodbye. What happens to us when we die? Nothing. <laughs> I don't believe in uh, heaven or hell. 
both of them are here. We experience them in, in this life. Um, I am not looking forward to uh, heaven, and uh, more interesting people are al always, I think, the uh, more laws say that they're going to be in hell. So sometimes I feel that hell is better if there is such a thing, but I don't think there is hell or um, heaven. We, we just live and die. You know, you and I were having a conversation, and I remember you said, our religion glorifies death. And that was certainly one of the precipitants yeah. for you to want to explore mortality. But then I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking many Iranians, especially in the diaspora, are not particularly religious. Nevertheless, do you think that that backdrop of glorifying death in the religion that many of us do spawn from, whether we're religious or not now, affects those of us who are more secular? Well, you know, when you live in Iran, for example, in Tehran, um, all around the city, there are murals of uh, paintings of uh, martyrs. So uh, you're going to work, but in every street that you turn, uh, somehow um, a martyr is looking down on you uh, on the road that you're going. This continuous background of death and glorifying it, which is an Islamic uh, thing that uh, you go to heaven and so on if you become a martyr uh, I find it bothersome uh, because um, I'm happy and I understand I sympathize with the family of the martyrs and so on uh, but uh, the fact that the whole atmosphere that you are living in on a daily life you're constantly reminded uh, it's, I, I, I think they don't let you forget it. And that's part of the politics of this particular regime. While on the subject of mortality, the great Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kirastami died a little less than four years ago in Paris. I, I know he was a dear friend of yours. You were his producer, his creative comrade. Tell me about the final conversations you had with him. Well, one thing, uh, both of us, um, Abbas and I, we uh, get up very early in the morning. Uh, this is an old habit. So most of the uh, artists or Iranian cinema really is after 10 in the morning or 11 in the morning when they start working. So we always have a telephone conversation. And uh, the first question always was, what are you doing uh, now? And uh, I would ask a similar question from him. Um, and uh, normally we discuss the projects that we were doing. The last time I was at this uh, house before he went to a hospital and later on went to France, um, he asked me about uh, uh, my project and I told them about the tale of the sea. And I told them that, you know, I'm playing the lead. And he said, I told you, you, are, you have to play the lead yourself because the dialogues that you write, uh, they're never correctly spoken by other uh, actors and so on. And um, then I asked him that, you know, what are you doing uh, in these days? And uh, he mentioned something. 
He said, the Monet and I um, um, are born on the same day, only a hundred years apart. Hmm. And uh, he called his assistant and said, bring the paintings of Monet and the things that I've done on them. So uh, they brought me 30 paintings of uh, Monet that Abbas had done some elements, added some elements on them. And they were amazing. Wow. They were amazing. And this was a man that he was in dying, you know, on deathbed. But he still his mind, he told his assistant, turn off this light, uh, turn on the other light. I want Bahman to see all the uh, things. So um, I still miss him a great deal. And... Uh, Oddly enough, he, he, he seems more alive now because constantly there are films made about him and there are constantly uh, exhibitions made uh, about him and so on. So he's, uh, he's gone, and, uh, but like all great artists, he's still here. You guys undoubtedly learned from each other. What did you most learn from Abbas Kiarostami. Well, I now tell most of these students or young people that when they ask me, I say when I see a flower, um, I, I look at the flower itself and the leaves and so on. And it was my experience that Abbas was always seeing the um, roots first before he saw the, you know, the flower. So he went much deeper uh, to anything that looked at. And uh, when we were, for example, we were going outside of Tehran and he would see uh, a tree um, on, the, on a hill, he would stop and says, you know, give me 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And he would go up and uh, uh, come back with some four or five beautiful photographs of um, that tree. Mm. So I learned from him is that you, um, you have to delve more deeply in anything that's around you. Wow, that's, that's a, a beautiful image of him uh, looking at that tree and, and, and taking that time. Uh, it all, it, it's it's some, something, it occurs to me it's it's about slowing down too, isn't it? It's about having the patience to see what's around us sometimes to take a closer look, I guess. Exactly. I think uh, um, he really uh, enjoyed himself. He enjoyed the um, uh, the nature. Now, I have a line in uh, uh, A Smell of Camphor uh, that I say that when I have a heart attack, and after uh, you know, I have recovered, I say, I thought that when uh, we are dying, we would think about our friends and family and so on. And I was only missing the, uh, the nature, mm. the tree, the beauties that, you know, make us think about, uh, you know, the deeper about the, uh, maybe another power exists. Um, and uh, Abbas was always talking about nature also. 
You know, you said earlier in this interview, um, giving up is not my job. And uh, I think about you, and I think sometimes a filmmaker's actions can become more important than his films. You, you've always been a person, it seems, who stood up against oppression or oppressive governments of different stripes. And in 2009, during those widespread protests following the disputed presidential election in, in Iran, you wrote that, famously wrote that open letter of protest saying how you could, how could anyone remain silent, you said, when so much was happening in your country. Uh, Bahman, what are the consequences of such courageous acts? How are you able to stay active in the landscape of the Iranian cinema? Uh, are you, you seem fearless to speak out. Are you? No, I'm not fearless and I'm not an idiot. You know, I know the, um, the dictatorship that we have at the police state that we have. But there are two things that maybe sometimes uh, it helps me. I never sign um, a protest letter with 100 other people. I always write and then, you know, what I want to say personally. And I would never uh, have a bunch of people around me to um, encourage me because that's what the government worries about, that you start uh, a movement. But when I uh, write something, I say I have uh, the courage to say it directly, and what happens, happens. And I, uh, I, I just don't know whether you know or not, but uh, my brother-in-law, who was a, a physician, uh, was uh, executed at the time of the Shah. Um, and he's now very much revered by the Islamic Republic. But most people don't know that he's my brother-in-law because I, I loved him. I, I didn't want uh, uh, to use his name for my own advantage. But I think these things happen whenever you have a dictatorship. And before the revolution, uh, we had a dictatorship, uh, and some people really were hurt, and now we have it worse than uh, what we had before because religion also has got involved. When you're saying that this uh, uh, president, current president, is an idiot, uh, you're not talking only about uh, your uh, present uh, president. You're talking about the government, which is connected to God, to Islam, and so on. So you can be uh, barbecued for it. Uh, and because of that, it's far worse than when, what we had at the time of the Shah. There are other filmmakers, your contemporaries or some who are a little younger, who haven't been able to bypass restrictions as ably as you have. I think of someone like Jafar Panahi. Do you, do you have conversations with him about this? Does he ask you uh, how, how you've managed to do it or vice versa? No, uh, Jafar uh, is, has got another uh, look. I think it's the um, stupidity of the system that Jafar is not allowed to leave Iran because he's free, he's making films, he sends them to other festivals, and uh, they just are angry with him because he doesn't accept to apologize. Uh, and uh, thus he's become a martyr, uh, and he makes films, and we talk about 
uh, all of this. Uh, and uh, he's making uh, films regularly. So it's um, every one of us really face uh, this uh, government in a different way. And uh, Jafar has decided to uh, fight them openly, and uh, they have kept him, uh, you know, uh, forbidden him to leave the country. Uh, and he makes his films, and he sends them to different festivals. He gets awards. He sells them for distribution outside. And uh, in a way, he's got the better of the... Uh, you know, the government. You know, in, in the darkest days, whether it be in the last 20 years, 40 years, uh, before the revolution even, uh, I Iranian cinema has emerged as something that Iranians all over the world uh, can take a lot of pride in, and that's because of people like you, because of people like Abbas Kiarostami, because of people like Jafar Panahi, Askar Farhadi. How do you see the mood and energy of Iranian cinema now in 2020, after the economic crisis, uh, after the sanctions, after the COVID-19 pandemic? How are the Iranian filmmakers of today looking at the future of cinema and filmmaking? How do you feel about it? You know, what has happened in Iran is that uh, because government is very touchy uh, with anything that is uh, socially... Um, critical and all that, we have gone towards, or our, our cinema has gone towards uh, very, very crass comedies. And um, you can't even sit down and watch them, you know, for the uh, 80 minutes or 100 minutes or so on. They're so bad. Hmm. Uh, but uh, on the side of it, there is still uh, so much talent in the uh, country, Farhadi belongs to this country, uh, Mohammad Rasulov, that won a uh, recent prize, yes. uh, he is also uh, lives uh, in this country. So uh, the country is very talented and the filmmakers are going to make uh, their films. And these uh, really uh, disgusting and ugly films that are being made just um, for a comedy that government allows them. Uh, and a lot of them, they go to outside of Iran, uh, they t write a story that goes to a foreign country. And the reality, the reason for it is that they like to show women without a job when they go to Brazil or they go to Thailand or others. And that is one of the um, selling points of the films. Um, I think we have reached a point that uh, the bad films are really uh, far uh, more than the really good films. But I'm um, hopeful because there are so many young, talented people that are coming up every day. It's such a great pleasure to talk to you. I've kept you so long. I, I do appreciate this. I have one last question, which is that... I, it occurs to me, you, you know, you're, we've established you're not old. You're a young man. <laughs> I'm calling you by your first name. That's how we started, you know. But, um, yeah. but you have put in a, 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 an incredible career over many decades. Uh, you know, you could choose to take it a little easier. 
um, I understand you're still putting in 12-hour days, uh, even during a pandemic, uh, even in your late 70s. Why is it so important now for you to work so much? Well, uh, Jean, uh, when you get to my age, you are uh, so close uh, to that everlasting rest. Uh, I don't want to rest now that I can breathe and I can walk and I can work. So um, I'm useless when I'm on vacation. I'm bored when I'm on vacation because my work is my vacation. And I really enjoy when I'm working. So the reality of is that uh, uh, despite what my wife tells me, uh, we've been married for 52 years. And, uh, but uh, she leaves me alone on these points simply because she knows that when I'm working, I'm okay. I'm a, I'm a good guy. When I'm not working, I'm grumpy. Thank you so much for doing this today. It's been an honor. Thank you. Chodafes. Chodafes. Bye. That is acclaimed filmmaker, director, producer, actor, Bahman Farmanara. He joined us from Tehran today. Is the Rook theme, by the way. And a reminder to any artists or musicians out there that we're taking submissions for your version of the Rook theme, that melody you just heard, um, in whatever instrument, whatever style you want to give it to us. We've got a few. We're going to be playing them. We played one last Thursday. Uh, on Thursdays, we'll give you uh, various samples of what people are sending in and props to those who are sending them in. So info at rookmedia.com. Info at rookmedia.com. Uh, where you can send us those submissions or any questions or comments or anything like that. Um, of course, you can find this program on YouTube or the audio podcast uh, on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. And um, we appreciate the interaction. You know, uh, to go out on the music today, I wanted to mention, so I talk about Shia, or I talk to Shia. Hi, Shia, Hi. who's on the other side of the glass. And, and I've mentioned a couple times uh, since we started the show, that uh, Shia is from a band that now exists in the Iranian diaspora uh, called Dang Show. Fabulous. Um, I mean, I would call you an indie rock band, but that doesn't really. Taha probably wouldn't like that. It's a, it's like a fusiony yes. rock pop explosion New, experience. Yes, New Age folklore. Uh, okay, New Age folklore. Uh, I highly recommend Dang Show if you haven't checked Thank them you. out. But um, the truth is, we have actually not played any Dang Show. Uh, I mean, other than the theme song that Chai and I worked on and some other great musicians. There's no, we haven't actually played real Dang Show music yet. And today we're not going to exactly do that, but uh, something like that. This is a song that is relevant to the chat that um, I just had there with Batman Farman Ara. And this is a new Dang Show project, right, Shia? Yes, yes, yes. Led by the project director being your your bro, your brother. Uh, Taha, yes. Taha. Uh, and this project, from what I understand, was started 
two years. This has a relevance to Abbas Kiarostami, the great Iranian filmmaker exactly, we were just talking to Rai yes. Farman uh, uh, about. So this project, tell me about this, was started a couple of years before we lost Abbas Kiarostami. Yeah, two years before, uh, yeah. And and the album you're creating, or it's finished? or It's not finished, it's not finished yet, finished. yes. But, but uh, it will start with two poems of Rumi, recited, selected and recited by Abbas Kiarostami. So Abbas Kiarostami doing Rumi yes, over top of Dang Show music. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. And then from what I understand, the rest of this album is Kiarostami um, haikus yes. recited by a couple of well, very well-known Iranian actors. Yes. Tell us who. Ali Mosafa va Mahtab Karamati. Right. Yes. And so, and then this particular song, which we're going to hear Ali and Mahtab on, uh, this is uh, produced by DJ DJ Dynatonic. Yes. Okay. So a lot of names there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a dang show project based on the haikus of Kirostami. Yes. Uh, featuring a couple of well-known Iranian actors, True. Uh, and produced by DJ Dynatonic. Uh, and another uh, tie-in, by the way, to this episode of, of Rook is that Ali uh, Ali Mosafa actually had a, has a role in the latest Batman uh, oh, yes, Farmanara yes. movie, right? Yes, Tale of the Sea, yeah, yeah, which yeah. hasn't come out around the world. That's why we didn't want to focus on that mm. that film for this interview. But mm. um, it looks really compelling. Having uh, you can see the trailer on YouTube. Okay, so we're gonna. Is there a name to this song that you're gonna play? No, not yet. Okay, all right. So this is a, a world exclusive because the album hasn't come out yet. Yes, no. Have you told Ali Masafa and, and Matab Keramati that you're playing this today? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they're going to find out. Yeah. Uh, this is full time for Rook today. Thank you to our amazing little team that uh, helped put this show together. Um, thank you to all of you who are out there supporting our, and growing our subscriber base and uh, letting us know about this, even though we're not really promoting this in a big way yet. The word of mouth is getting around, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. Mizun uh, Bashin, and I'm going to take it away to this world-exclusive um, Dang Show, uh, the new Dang Show project featuring the haikus of Abbas Kiarostami. می ترسم افتادم از بلندی از آتش می ترسم سوختم به کرات از جدایی می ترسم رنجیدم چه بسیار از مرگ نمی هراسم نمردم هرگز حتی یک بار زبانم جاری شد آنچه نمی باید گفت پایم کشیده شد جایی که نمی باید رفت
بر زبانم جاری شد آنچه نمی باید گفت پایم کشیده شد جایی که نمی باید رفت بر زبانم جاری شد آنچه نمی باید گفت پایم کشیده شد جایی که یک بار 